0: Coming up on this week's show, we reminisce about Zip Drives. The coolest Doom mod ever. And we chat to modern vintage gamer on how to circumvent anti-piracy measures.
1: Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 214. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood.
2: Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a
1: very warm welcome to this week's show. Welcome back, Ravi. Oh, thank you. I'm feeling better now. Over the man flu? Yep. <laughs> Not Corona. <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't make that very clear at the start we, of last week's episode. We were worried. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you had to come back for this week's episode because today uh, we're going to be joined by someone we've had on the podcast before who we're all really big fans of his YouTube channel. And uh, it's a subject that we haven't actually covered for a couple of years now. Today we're going to be talking about the dark underworld of the video games industry, piracy. Yeah, so previously we had Galahad on. Yeah, that was one of our earliest episodes. One of our earliest
0: episodes, but it was really popular. I think it's still one of our most popular episodes, and that was about the cracking group and cracking scenes. Today we're going to be talking to Modern Vintage Gamer about how to kind of get past the copy protection. Like Every time a new console comes out, they always say ah, we're going to defeat the pirates, nothing's going to be able to be copied on our system. But somehow, using tweezers, using strange devices, <laughs> um, the crackers
1: always managed to crack it. I mean, did you have, like, mod chips in your PlayStation and stuff back in oh, the Oh, God,
2: yeah, everybody and yeah. you know, anybody who was cool, man, you know, around our area had the chips PlayStation. Um, so it was really cool to reminisce with him and talk about that, you know, and kind of, he took us through from, like, you know, the floppy disk era, all the way up kind of like to the PS3 and everything in between, which I thought was really cool.
1: Yeah, and a lot of these systems, like you said, you know, they always come out with them and like the protection on this is unbeatable, no one's going to do it, then there's always a way. Yeah. And some of them are the weird, like you said, tweezers. Yeah, (laughs) and and usually
0: it's like stuff like action replay bits of hardware like disc doctor and stuff that it's always a little bit dodgy and
1: grey area, isn't it? That's one thing about piracy has always felt like it's one step ahead of where the rest of the industry is. Mm. And even today, I mean, how important it is for preserving old games. I mean, the fact that emulation, you know, without the piracy scene back then we wouldn't be able to play a lot of these you games. You know, you download downloaded a lot of these classic games and the
0: crack tro comes up straight yeah. away. And you're like, <laughs> if they hadn't
1: cracked it, would this game be available? Yeah. I've actually seen, I've heard stories of, um, I can't think of any specific examples, but, you know, companies that have kind of re-released their old games or collections and they're actually the pirated versions of the games. Yeah, I've, there. yeah I've heard
2: those stories as well. <laughs> I see I haven't got the source code anymore <laughs> of that. So
1: piracy's always been, a, I mean, since video games started, piracy's been part of the scene. So this is going to be really interesting. Kind of the history of piracy coming up this week with Modern Vintage Gamer. He'll be on the podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, of course, every week on the Retro Hour, we keep you up to date with what's been happening in the world of retro gaming. We've got some brilliant stories to talk about this week, including the return of Tiger's LCD handhelds, which I know Joe's extremely excited about. (laughs) Before we do that, though, we need to ask for your help with something. Now, it's not very often we ask for your help, but... I mean, let me explain a little bit about how this show works. We've done this podcast in the studio now that we're in now um, at 10 o'clock at night on a Wednesday evening. We've done it in here for, since we started, over four years now. And the thing about it is this is not our studio. So we can come in here a couple of hours a week. We've got to work around other people and the schedule and that kind of thing. And that really kind of limits when we can get guests on. For example, next week, John Gibson's going to be on the show, which I think we revealed last week. You had to record that at home because it was early in the morning.
0: Yeah, because he was from Thailand. So, uh,
1: you know, we couldn't get the studio at this time. Yeah, so, I mean, really we're quite limited as to when we can get in here and record the show, hence being in here at 10 o'clock at night. And because it's not our studio, there is going to be a point at some stage in the future when we probably haven't got access to the studio anymore. So we want to keep doing the podcast, and that means either we have a couple of options. I mean, we could just do it on Skype at home with USB mics and headsets, which I think not being in the same room, that really changes the dynamic of the show.
2: Yeah, it kind of loses its charm a little yeah. bit. Um, a lot of podcasts you know, do that. And a lot of joke, podcasts yeah. do that, and we can do that. Yeah. But it could learn. It could lose some of its, like, you know, finesse and yeah. some of its charm,
1: you know. And I think... You know, I've got a background in broadcasting. Ravi, years as an audio engineer, we want the show to sound studio quality. That's mm. something we've always prided ourselves on. So we're not really up for doing that. Um, the other option is to get our own studio, which is what we decided that we want to do. Now, this is going to give us a lot more flexibility because not only can we come in any hour of the day, we can record guests that are all around the world, but also if we've got more time in the studio, we can do more things as well. For example, maybe launch a second podcast which we've had an idea we're doing for a while.
0: And we have been planning this for a while. So Dan's actually been gathering all the studio equipment. So, you know, we've pretty much got the studio, so we just need the space,
1: really. Well, out of my own pocket, I've spent about five grand on getting all the equipment ready. What we need, like you said, is somewhere to do it. Now, we've been looking. I mean, the other option is we could rent a studio, which we've looked at. I mean, (laughs) to rent a studio like this to do the show in generally costs about £150 an hour. Mm. So... And we often do five, six-hour recording sessions on a night. You know, we're probably going to meet until one in the morning tonight. Yeah, we're not very efficient. (laughs) (laughs) And we have guests on, you know, and schedules and that slips. That's not really an option. So, we're asking for your help this week. Now, we want to build our own studio, which we figured, you know, we need a few hundred quid a month to to rent a space. Nothing fancy. We've got all the equipment. We're going to put it in there. But we're going to do something people have been asking us to do for a long time. Yeah, so we've had the kind of kitty jar, which has
0: just been a general... Chuck donations in, and that will support the show. But we've had so many people from the very start of the podcast saying, You guys need to set up a patron. Yeah.
1: So that's what we're doing. And I know there will be some people that are like, oh, you know, everyone asks for Patreon donation," And I get that, which is, you know, one of the reasons we haven't done it till now. Revolve's felt a bit like, you know, is it the right thing to do? But I think if we want to keep this show going into the future, this is something that we have to do. We need to get our own studio. And, you know, like I said, I've paid for all the equipment out of my own pocket. But we're giving you something in return for helping us out on this as well. Now... It is only a couple of quid a month. We'll make that really clear. I mean, the other option is that we could run more advertising on the show, which is something that we didn't want to do either. No, yeah. But you, we want to keep it to a certain level yeah. of
0: advertising. You know.
1: But, I mean, maybe you'd like to get the show with no advertising on at all, which is one of the things we're going to offer if you support us on Patreon. So we've got a few little perks. We'll, um, that We're launching this now. We're hoping it's going to be a success. And we're hoping that you guys are going to help us out doing this and help us get the studio. So we'll link it up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Essentially... Not only will you get an ad-free show, but also you're going to get some extras, like a new podcast that we're starting called, do you like the name, The Retro Hour After Hours?
2: I do like the name. Quite I quite not of that, it. Name. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're going to be doing some bonus stuff like extra videos, behind-the-scenes things. A lot of people say we'd love longer interviews, so we are actually going to be recording extended interviews that if you're a patron, you'll be able to listen to as well. You can get stuff like Retro Hour T-shirts, and we'll be doing events and that throughout the year as well that I'm sure we can get you access to. So essentially what we're doing is, there are some perks in there, but we want your help to ensure that the retro has got a future after this year.
0: Yeah, and if you're not back in the patron, you're still going to get the retro hour as it is yeah. you know always be free for everybody
1: absolutely we're just asking for your help if you want to help but we understand not everyone can but everyone wants to absolutely fine keep enjoying the show for free each week that's fine but if you'd like a help like to help us out and make sure that we've got a future with this podcast and we can improve it it's going to make things so much better having our own studio the amount of time we can spend in there the amount of extra content and we more can guests you know yeah. different hours from around the world as well <laughs> yeah it's going to be absolutely amazing so if you'd like to help us out on that of course that will be on our website theretrohour.com right in the front page and that We'll link it in this week's show notes as well. Any help we get, massively appreciated. Fingers crossed, we like next week we've got like one guy. He's like, oh, I'll help you out, guys.
2: And we'll see. Yeah, we'll it, see. Might ha- yeah. it might happen, but we'll carry on either way.
1: Right, he, he's he... just
0: sitting there with all these exclusive episodes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into this week's news stories then. Now, before we track to MVG, I did kind of tease it before. Tiger are making a comeback with these retro L C D handhelds.
2: So I absolutely love this because of at the same time it's so ridiculous but i love it so tiger are releasing i think it's four lct you know tiger electronic games from the 90s they're going to have the little mermaid transformers generation 2 x-men project x and an absolute classic sonic the hedgehog 3 and these are going to be available really soon it says in GameStop, right For $14.99. Batteries not included. But there (laughs) is. There never are. (laughs) There never are. They never are. Batteries not included, it states. Exact replicas with the amazing artwork and everything. Of the you know, they they are the the Tiger game, you know, the Tiger LCT handheld games, uh, game consoles. Like, I'm I'm so excited to see these in game and get some for Christmas. And you, <laughs> you know, know you know, they
0: are the true 90s ones, because they've yeah. done absolutely no improvement on them. <laughs> oh, no.
2: Yeah, they're still the LCD screens. They probably, for the same price, could have put like a nice little digital screen or in there. Or an option for <laughs> a Bluetooth yeah. controller or something But no, like that. they've yeah. still just got like the two buttons on them and stuff like that. They've kept it completely retro. I've, I'm hoping in the UK they're going to kind of like, you know, pop up on Zavi and, you know, in FOP and places like that. And I'm, I'm fingers crossed, like my mum and my boss at work buy me them for Christmas.
1: (laughs) That's what's going to, I mean, to me, these just bring back memories of heartbreak. Yeah. Christmas morning. Yeah, Grandma's got you Sonic the Hedgehog. Oh, she's got me a Mega Drive. Yeah, this is one of them. Like, yeah. It was always Grandma man. as well, wasn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He <laughs> likes some video game things, let's get him one of these. And you remember these games. I mean, there weren't anything complicated. Oh,
2: God, no. It generally had
1: the background that was either just if kind of... If you look at separate. them in a
2: certain light, you yeah. can actually see everything at the LCD at You're once. right, it could. <laughs> And,
1: and it, it was usually like
0: free animations, like yeah. left, forward and... You know, K-cos. and I think
2: I think by the kind of 2001, you got them in a Happy Meal, you know, <laughs> with McDonald's. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm super excited for this. See, Tamagotchi obviously had a bit of a comeback a few years ago. We talked
1: yeah. about that. Um, but I don't know. I kind of feel like this is one step too far. I'm already feeling sorry for the kids that will be unwrapping them on Christmas Day I, this year. I
2: don't think too many kids are going to get them. I think it's going to be... It's going to be like us who are going to get them on Christmas Day. Let's be <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> but I if, think they're cool. If I have kids, this is all they're getting. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Ravi, the strict dad. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if you do want to get a hold of one of those, they are going to be out very soon. Just when we thought we'd seen the back of them forever. Now let's talk about Doom. I mean, Doom is obviously you know we were chatting about it last week. You and me, Joe, is um, a game that really was a benchmark in video games in the nineties. change everything that game. But also not only the fact that it was technologically very advanced for the time, and a great game of course, mm. but also the the scene that came up around doom yeah the modding community that yeah continues to this day yeah now, like, the open sourcing of the engine like, yeah to so many people taking it up and uh just doing crazy things with doom and quake as well actually well this is something that i know you've been very excited about zombies ate my neighbors and doom mashup
2: <laughs> i absolutely love this i love zombies ate my neighbors one of one of my favorite games of all time So yeah, somebody has spent the time to completely recreate the first three levels from Zombies Ape My Neighbours in the Doom 2 mod. Uh, It's GZ Doom, it's called, but it's Doom 2 mod. It looks fantastic, and it plays so well from the video. I wanted to put it as like my retro pick, but I was like, "This is so good! Like, <laughs> we need to talk about this for a couple of minutes." I've, like,
0: I've actually seen one recently, which was Chaos Engine, which was yeah, exactly the same time. Uh, it was like three levels at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They'd imported the enemies.
2: Yeah, this is this is what they've done here as well. They, you know. They've got the sprites, and the sprites are still like the two D sprites from the actual game, but. It just, like, literally, like, I'm so familiar with, like, the first 20 (laughs) levels of Zombies Ain't My Neighbours. They've got the level, the sizes and the scales of the levels and everything. Like They've got the trampolines working? They've got the trampolines (laughs) working as well. It's spot on. Like, I love it. I absolutely love it. So, you know, I, I would love to get my hands on this and play it. I don't think you can at the moment. It's just a video, but right. I'm going to keep my eyes peeled for it. And I'll probably be talking about it again <laughs> if you can play it.
1: Because normally the release season, you can just play them on the, like you said, the PC version of yeah. it. I mean, it's all open source now anyway. So, uh, And that, that's the thing. I mean, I, I think it's awesome as well that in Software it, we're just so relaxed about everyone doing this kind of thing. And they put the source code out there. Everyone just enjoyed the game after they made the money off it. I mean, you say that. I was looking the other day, though, on the Nintendo Switch. They put out Doom 1. Mm. And Doom 2, then if you saw it for about £1.49. Oh, really? Really cheap. And actually, Doom, the original Doom, was number two in the Switch chart. <laughs> I, I saw an awesome. interview
0: with um, John Carmack yeah. Uh, yeah. on Joe Rogan's podcast. And yeah. It was basically him saying, you know, we put the Doom source code out there. So in 100 years, they'll still be like, oh, let's try and get Doom to run on it.
1: They'll <laughs> <laughs> still be making mods probably in 100 yeah. years yeah. For Doom, So uh, long may it continue. Now, my mum actually used to work on those big mainframe computers back in the day. I've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, She was like a a systems operator back on the mainframes in the 70s. And I've got great pictures of her. I mean, she she had this machine called Dora that she used to work on for the council. And um, they do like pay slips and all that kind of thing through it. But it was actually probably double the size of the room that we're in now. (laughs) And I think the printer was probably about the size of this desk in front of us. But, I mean... Back then she used to tell me about how she used punch cards. Do you know what punch cards are?
2: I think so. The only thing I can think of is like how you like log into work back in the day, they, <laughs> essentially. You know, they, you know, they were data storage, they were yeah. like,
0: like later on they had ticker tape for stuff like the PD, uh, P1, stuff like that. But the punch cards were actually data storage. But we're talking about these because of a book that's celebrating punch cards, but I've not actually. Never seen this fact before, but apparently it started in 1890.
2: Wow. Okay. See, that is retro. As, uh, <laughs> data storage until the 70s. That could the
1: be 70s, as retro so. we've ever
2: got.
1: <laughs> yeah, because punch cards, I mean, they were essentially binary. So you had like um, little holes where the zeros yeah. and ones would go. So, yeah, you, rather than having to make the programs every time, I mean, a lot of it back then was them switch-based. So, you know, turning switches on machines. This would actually do the switching for you when you put the cards in. But this book then, I mean, I love the picture on this article here on a Creative Boom, all the different coloured punch cards as well, like the red ones and the yellow ones and purple ones as well, quite visually striking. I've never had a system myself where I've used punch cards before. But the reckon that um, this kind of reveals a lot of information about unseen data and things that we didn't know in the past then.
0: Yeah, because they've got stuff like bus tickets, they've got right. like, um, you know... Kind of information on truck vehicle orders. And, uh, Sounds <laughs> interesting. <gotta> yeah, say. <laughs> yeah, all, all this old stuff. But also, you know, they've got like the laser cutters at the moment. So they're, they're cutting the covers with laser cutters. Right. So they look absolutely beautiful and precise. And this book is going to have over 220
1: punch cards featured in it. You know, I actually do find that kind of stuff interesting there's like some stuff on reddit recently i've been looking at which was people that have got like old books that were in libraries mm. and someone may have left like a bus ticket in there from the 60s or something and just kind of seeing that stuff like relics of a time gone by i've also thought it's quite there's a story behind every one of them someone made that
2: journey Something you know what I mean? <laughs> something i like to do and it's like kind of a re- irrelevant but relevant at the same time is whenever i buy a game i always put the receipt for the game in the box right and I always find it interesting because one game I always go back to is Call of Duty Black Ops, which isn't—it's about nine years old yeah, now yeah. or something. But it's interesting to see that I've been doing that for like ten years now. And I always go, "Oh, I bought it for forty-nine ninety-nine, or I bought it for 25 And I've always done it with like my PS2 games and stuff like that. So it's interesting, you know, that people used to do that with bus—you know, bus tickets with books and stuff like that. Do
1: you remember where you were when you got the game as well? Like when you it, see it, it, it yeah. comes back to yeah, me. Yeah.
2: You know, oh yeah, I bought that in HMV, and yeah, it's yeah. just like. I can't remember the last time I bought a game in HMV. do you know what I mean?
0: Well, this book also has a really cool name, Print Punch, uh, Artifacts from the Punch Card Era. So uh, check that
1: out, it's from Patrick Fry Studio. Yeah, and if, if the picture's near anything to go by, essentially there's some beautiful imagery in here, of like the Punch Card Era and these classic machines as well. Again, it's something that you don't see all that often. It's just, you know, obviously uh, we're being aware of like punch card systems and the old mainframes and that, but I mean, visually as well, if you ever go to like, you know, computer museums or the science museum where they've got these old machines like craze and that kind of thing set up, they look incredible. But but even if you think like
0: craze would be like the modern things compared to like teletype and some of the really old stuff. So, you know, these guys were caning them out in the (laughs) the 1890s, yeah.
1: (laughs) So if that wasn't nerdy enough for you, we should you talk about Zip Drives? Oh, yes. Zip Drives. They were fantastic, weren't they? Do you um, remember having a Zip Drive done? I did. Now, I remember using them, first of all. I think we had them at school the kind of when they first came in, because actually they celebrated their 25th anniversary this month, which is why we're talking about it. And there's an article here on uh, HowToGeek.com talking about you know, 25 years of the Zip Drive, why we still remember it today. The thing I remember about it is when I first saw the Zip Drive is how cool it looked because back then you remember everything was kind of mid-90s pcs generally looked a bit boring the beige boxes and they were all beige you never yeah. got any black
0: plastic and that looked really cool but also the fact that you could just have so much information on there you know 40 megabytes <laughs> the the sizes were uh, varying f- throughout the time that it actually uh, got developed
1: yeah when it up uh, i remember them being about 100 megs when i used them we have usb sticks on our keyring and all that now it's so easy to transport data between systems but back then if you had i remember being at school and using um floppy disks and downloading files off the internet and having to split them up over about five or six disks yeah. and then rebuilding them or joining them at home when you got a zip drive though having a 100 megabytes that you could just put in your bag and take it home with you before usb came along that was revolutionary there was no it's mean cd burners were really expensive then i think to burn a cd cost about two grand in the mid-90s yeah yeah. so they're saying you know eventually zip rose up to um
0: around 250 megabytes and then finally 650 which was kind of getting close to a a cd-rom size isn't it and there's all these strange formats like Pocket Zip that I never even heard of. Photo
1: Show as well, right. which is a, <laughs> a really weird one. because it did keep going for a while into the early 2000s, and I think that... Zip CD? Did you There was one that was like an MP3 player. You know what Minidisc tried to do? Tried to compete with MP3 by having it on a physical format. Yeah. No one ever used any of that. I mean, really, Zip's peak was mid to late 90s, wasn't it really? Well, there's one thing that we're never going to forget, which is the zip click of doom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that would be if it would mess up, you'd get this awful click yep. and you, your drive would be gone. You knew it was broken then, yeah. But zip drives, I mean, there's something that was very much of its time. And I did, I've actually got a zip drive at home and I need to go through these actually. I, I wanted some blank zip disks for it. I had a little project where I was trying to get some stuff onto like an old Windows 3, one PC. Didn't have USB and all I thought it's a good idea. We'll, we'll use a zip drive. But I actually went on eBay and I bought a collection of about 20 zip disks for about a fiver Mm. and they've all got stuff on them there's like handwritten labels and things on them so i haven't looked what's on there yet (laughs) i've had them about four or five years but that's my job for the weekend i think uncover what's on these long lost zip disks. probably doom mods
2: there's your first uh retro hour after hours there you go all about my (laughs) zip disks next
1: week no one's going to back that now. <laughs> now, before we get into this week's chat, uh, talking about anti-piracy measures and the history of cracking, um, let's talk about Altered Beast as well. Now, we've we've talked about Altered Beast on the show before. Uh, a game that weirdly is considered to be a crap game generally now, which is really weird because I remember loving that game in the arcades and on the Mega Drive.
2: Isn't it funny? Because Altered Beast is like, I think we all wear rose-coloured glasses when it comes to yeah. it. I remember getting it on a like a you know, the Sega Mega Collection, but one of the first ones for PS2 and being like, oh, bloody hell, yeah, Old Beast, what a game, what a game. I remember when my mate brought that round and we caned it that afternoon and then me and my mate, we sat down, and we played it. And then before you know it, you're like, oh, is that it? You know? Do you know what I mean? For 10 minutes kind of thing. Isn't it funny that it's got such a legacy when it is only like a 20-minute game and it's not got any replay value at all other than the fact that it's kind of difficult? I love the fact that, you know, you
1: could just transform into different things. Yeah. The, I thought that was what impressed me at the time. Yeah,
2: and don't get me wrong, like, it's kind of like a tech demo for the Mega Drive. Because, yeah. you know, it's got the transformations, it's got the sound bites, it's got the, uh, you know, the American werewolf in London, you know, how, when you transform into the wolf and stuff like that. So I kind of see it as like that kind of like tech demo, but this is another one that's been fan remade as yeah. well, isn't it? So essentially
1: there's a, there's a fan remake of Altered Beast, um, with three different modes in there as well, using Construct Two, um, the the game engine for that, uh, and it looks pretty good. Um, and essentially, they're the releasing this for Android. You can play online on a web browser, Windows, Linux, Mac OS as well. The iOS version at the moment, but really, it's just a complete fan remake from the ground up. It was a very early Mega Drive game. It was the release
2: game. Yeah, the release game. Uh, yeah, that's game. why I it said it's right. kind of like a tank demo. You yeah, know? that's
0: that's why it was bundled I, I didn't it. have that much exposure to it. I remember playing like. Versions of it on other systems that were yeah. awfully bad,
2: badly oh God, ported. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You know, there was versions on the Amiga and stuff like that. And they're notoriously bad. It, yeah, so, like, I
0: shouldn't start trying to talk. Yeah, so you I'll
2: leave but, it. To but it, it was Old Beast, be Super Thunderblade, I want to say um, Italia World Soccer or something right, like that. You yeah, know, yeah. Like, like 1990, that, 1990, yeah, 1990 yeah. or something. Might maybe maybe that came a little bit later. You know. Uh, but it, it, 100% it came out with the Mega Drive.
1: See, next time I'm in my local supermarket, I told you I had this story before. I, I was wearing a Sega T-shirt at my local supermarket, and this guy's like, aha, retro video games. i like, oh, yeah. He goes, oh, me- Sega Mega Drive. What was the first game released on the Sega Mega Drive? <laughs> I was like, God, that's hard. I actually thought Altered Beast, and I said that to him. I was like, uh, probably in the UK, was it Altered Beast? And he went, No. Sonic the Hedgehog I was like no no that was definitely and he got really aggressive angry got really angry aggressive at
2: me, didn't yeah. he but you started arguing with him didn't you <laughs> right in the middle of that thing yeah.
1: <laughs> I run a podcast mate yeah. I, didn't, I didn't say that already, <laughs>
2: but, yeah. but yeah Sonic came June 91 I think it was or right, yeah like it was that, way yeah. later yeah yeah much that, yeah. later yeah.
1: So, but I do remember Ultra Beast being a really early game and it's cool that it's got a fan remake it proves that there are more fans of Alta Beast yeah, yeah. than just me and you Joe so there you go Go <laughs> and check it out I'll put a link to that and everything we talked about in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com now, of course, this week... We're all about giving big thank yous to people who've supported this podcast. And, of course, every week on the show, which we'll continue doing, if you're back as on our new Patreon, you'll still get a mention in the Hall of Fame as well. Um, there are a few different options on that. Obviously, check out the new Patreon on our website. Um, but we we'll are keeping PayPal open as well for people that might just want to make one-off donations. This all, of course, really helps, goes back into the running of the show, and that uh, will get us closer to this goal of building our own studio a bit later on this year with your help. And, of course, for making a donation of any amount, we roll out the red carpet and you find your place on the most prestigious high-score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, Stephen Quinn,
0: Carl Busby,
1: Darren Glenn, and Andy Cooper, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same on our new Patreon or by PayPal, you'll find those links on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, every week we give a lot of shout out to a lot of projects and YouTube channels and stuff that we've been looking at this week in our retro picks. Now, I've got to say a huge shout to Quang from... A Sobitech. Now, we had him on the podcast a couple of years ago. And finally, this week, Mayo Mayo Castle got released. Oh, that—that's an awesome game. We've played so many. Or oh, is it Meow Meow Castle? I Mau think Mau it's Meow Meow, yeah, yeah. like
0: a cat. Meow Meow. Yeah, yeah.
1: And, um, <laughs> 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 like <Well>, a what, like <laughs> what, Ravi? Yeah, I, I got it wrong. Just say, so do the impression. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, We've played this game. It's fantastic. It's—it's uh, it's using your hand, yeah, to kind of control
2: a, a crazy flying. Oh, cat. I've it's played a bit like yeah, Space area. area. I've played yeah. this yeah. drunk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a great game. Yeah, we played it at Play Expo probably about yeah. two years ago. About two, years ago. Uh, two
1: years ago, wasn't it? I guess uh, that was in like. To then or, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But very early version, but it's finally come out this week, and I believe it is actually available for free download at the moment. If okay. you want to get it, um, it's released a few. There's like a Mac version, a Windows version. He's put out already, um, and like you said, we played this game two years ago. And I remember being blown away by how much fun it was. I was absolutely <laughs> terrible at it. Might have been something to do with having like six pints of Carlsberg beforehand, but you know, it was. Uh, I do remember it being loads of fun, and uh, it's available now if you want to give it a download. So support indie developers as well. You're all about indie games. Now, you've been playing board games. Yeah, so I've been playing this fantastic game.
0: It's uh, by James Simon Bradley. It's called Civitas Nahelium.
1: Another show that we did in the past. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And it's basically a solo board game that's been developed mostly using the Commodore Amiga, so using deluxe paint and stuff like that. And it's set in a cyberpunk universe. And um, you have a soundtrack, so you kind of put the soundtrack on, you play the game, and... uh, yeah, it looks really interesting. I've got all the stuff at home. I'm going to have a playthrough on my YouTube channel. So hopefully I won't do too badly. I'm <laughs> awful at, awful at uh, these kind of games. But yeah, so come and join me with that and uh, check out Civitas Nahelium. It looks really good.
1: Well, if you're playing it on your own, at least you can't lose.
0: Yeah, I <laughs> That's <it>. Well, maybe. <laughs> Straight
1: away, I die. <laughs> uh, Joe sent me the most amazing clip. Um, and this was, do you remember Tomorrow's World? Yeah, used yes. I love Tomorrow's World on TV sorely miss Tomorrow's World now this is a clip talking about on this day in 1984 it was a little section they did about the fact that you know you might be fed up playing your latest video game you'd have to go out and buy a new cartridge for your Atari or something but they had <laughs> this incredible system where you could essentially download new games from a vending machine <laughs> have a listen to this
3: if you enjoy playing video games at home there's something new for you too Not a new game, but a vending machine which sells them. I'll just explain the system. Now, normally, if you get fed up with playing a game, you have to go out and buy a whole new cartridge. But because this is a special reprogrammable cartridge, all you need to do is take it back to the shop and buy a ticket for the vending machine. Inside here, there are over 300 different games. It simply consists of a computer, which stores programs for all the different games on a hard disk. Well, the computer is now asking me what type of machine I have at home, and mine is type A, and so it asks me to insert my cartridge in the top slot. Well, it will now run through all 300 games. Uh, I'll spare you that, and I'll go for number one, Dragonfire.
1: So it's a flashcard essentially.
2: How, how far ahead yeah. of the curve is that? When I saw that, I saw it a couple of weeks ago, it just reminded me of so much like what we've gone through yeah. over the last kind of like 20 years as well. And, you know, you know, I've seen the gaming story an episode about where Blockbuster actually tried to do something with Mega Drive and the yeah. Genesis, a really similar thing. And then it just reminded me so much of downloading games now, you know, just, you know, on your console and stuff like that. I thought it was crazy. It just reminded me that, like, car boot sales were, like, my
0: vending machine. <laughs> you
2: yeah. A you'd have 300 games. But just, like, yeah. they did have that back in the 80s, and it's just, yeah. it's crazy it never took off.
1: That was, like, the 80s version of Steam. Yeah, essentially <laughs> yeah. You, know, right yeah. You, you go with your cartridge put it in flash it with a new guy. that's a really yeah, good idea yeah, it's yeah. weird that I, I never saw them anywhere. So I, I imagine, never saw them yeah, either they didn't get released or they you know, never took you'd off you'd be or. annoyed
0: though if they got it wrong though somehow there was a little like bug when it got flashed and then you came home and you're
1: like, yeah how do you yeah. get a refund off the vending machine yeah. yeah there was probably some sort of reason
2: why it never became mainstream yeah. maybe it just wasn't very reliable or you know she said I'll save you the time by, you know, just picking the first game, maybe it took forever to like, download <laughs> yeah. one. Game 299. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> then you've got to
1: write it to the cart. Yeah. yeah. I imagine. But yeah, what, what a cool, very ahead of the time concept. So you want to check out any of those we talked about the lobby in our show notes at theretroair.com. I think we should bring back tomorrow's world on YouTube. Get Ravi like a brown suit or something. <laughs> I, I can picture it now. We could do that. Char- i get some thick glasses. Challenge <laughs> Annika afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Joe's booty. Yeah, man. <laughs> Anyone outside the UK now is like, what? Yeah, look that up on YouTube. Right there, Let's get to this week's special guest, Modern Vintage Gamer, talking about the history of piracy. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And today we're going to be joined by um, someone who's actually been on the show before, but we've got quite a lot of new stuff to cover. On the podcast this week, it's actually been two years since we last caught up, and of course, I'm talking about Demetrius from Modern Vintage Gamer. Welcome back, Demetrius.
4: Hey, uh, thanks for having me back on the show, fellas. It's great to be here, and yeah, it's it's been two years. I can't believe it. Uh, a lot a lot, has, a lot has happened in that time, but uh, it's great to be back on the show.
1: Well, we're talking about your YouTube channel last time, and I think last time we spoke, you just hit around 100k. And um, now you're close to around 400k. You must be yep. pretty pleased with the progress of that, then.
4: Yeah, it's been good. It, it's been going well. A uh, lo- lot of work, obviously, to, to get there. It's, it's not just you know sit back and and watch watch the subs roll in. There's obviously a lot of work that's involved, but I really enjoy doing it, and you know like to come out with interesting content every single week. And, and I think you know people, the viewers, the fans, they're all kind of responding well. And yeah, channel's going great. Well last time we had
0: you on we were talking about emulation and you know you had a lot of involvement with emulators and optimizing stuff. Um, Now today we're going to be talking about defeating copy protection and I was wondering how much defeating copy protection helps when building or optimizing an emulator.
4: I think it's uh, it's quite important. I mean if you think of it I mean it's a Pretty general question, so I'll kind of answer it in, in with some specifics for Abby, But essentially, you know, there's there's always going to be some some one-off games or uh, some some ROMs out there that had custom chips in there or some type of you know security mechanism. So emulators have to be you know cognizant of of those things as well. But the good news is because you know an emulator essentially is just you know the the CPU code. Running in a loop, and then you know the the chips that that are also being emulated, the video chips, the sound chips, you have complete control over you know over the machine emulation. So you can easily just uh, I'll say just kind of skip over things you know that that we know are copy protection type type anti piracy type stuff, and it just means you have a lot more control over things. So in a general sense, I mean, if you if you like fire up a game like you know Earthbound on the Super NES, which is notorious for having four layers of copy protection what you'll find in an emulator is that they they just patch out those routines that they know that oh yeah this is the this is the protection routine we're just gonna you know we're just gonna patch that out we're gonna just jump over that part so obviously there's a lot of lot of work that's being done there on on that front
2: do you ever worry that talking about these kind of subjects like emulation and you know copyright and stuff like that will ever affect your channel or like any sort of like Demonetization with it?
4: That that's a great question, Joe. Um, yes, yes, yes. So I, I do worry about it sometimes, and I have been. I'll say, um, I don't want to say I've been targeted or anything like that, but mm. there's been there's been some close calls that that have, that have come up in the past. But I think you know, for me, I, I don't really want to stop talking about those things. I, I think it's important to, you know, when, when you talk about like game preservation, and you, you've got historians that talk about. The history of a game, or the you know the the uh, the life cycle of, of game development that happened back in the 80s or the 90s. I think this is a very important topic to discuss as well. How how things were defeated, how copy protection works, you know, how to how anti piracy measures were implemented in certain systems and certain games. So I do think um, you know it, it is something that I want to continue doing. Whether I get you know close calls or I get Uh, YouTube, you know, telling me you can't do that anymore. I mean, I think at the end of the day, if, if really it comes down to, you know, YouTube saying, look, you can't do that anymore. I would probably just continue doing it on another platform, honestly. I mean, I'd probably continue doing YouTube, but I would still talk about the anti-piracy stuff on, on another platform.
1: Well, let's talk about your personal history then with getting around copy protection. I mean, I remember being a kid and, you know, a teenager and those long late nights with uh, X copy sessions, you know, my friends over and going through loads of blank discs and doing copies of games. I mean, what was kind of your experience then when you, when you were young?
4: Sounds very similar to mine, Dan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when I was in college, um, or even actually going further back, I mean, when I was, when I was in elementary school, we would, uh, we would schoolyard copy VIC-20 cassettes. Pretty pretty soon after we got the Vic twenty, it was, you know, the schoolyard copying and that that transitioned on to the C sixty four and the Amiga, believe it or not. So and then when I was uh, when I was when I kind of got into college later on, we would we would definitely have X copy parties and things like that going on. We there was a lot of a lot of that stuff. I mean, we would buy games, you know, the games that we really, really liked, we would buy, and I've got a pretty decent Amiga big box collection that that I've had since since you know I was I was growing up back in those days but there was a lot of the X copying type stuff going on absolutely I I
0: remember back in those days um depending on the company the kind of strength of security would be different on the titles and uh you know there'd be some that you could do straight away an X copy and there'd be some that you couldn't um you mentioned in your video about floppy disk protection uh faster than light um copy protection and uh it being one of the most devious pieces of protection in history
4: can you uh, tell us about this <laughs> yeah so the game dungeon master that came out for originally for the ST and then a little later on for the Amiga the the um kind of the first person dungeon crawler that that came out had a pretty ingenious copy protection method in there there was there was two types of protection in the game The first one was there was like the unreadable sector, you know, with that was pretty standard back in those days. If you think about like Rob Northern protection, you probably heard that before Uh, it was, you know, you you put the disc in the drive and it would say not a DOS disc or anything, you know, on the Amiga because there was that, that unreadable sector. You could read it um, with an action replay and that's how a lot of the crackers got around it and defeating that protection wasn't too hard. So Dungeon Master had that protection and a lot of people left it at that and said, oh, I've, I've beaten the protection because, you know, we, we kind of cracked the unreadable sector. But there was also the the second protection, which was even more ingenious, and that was the, the fuzzy bit or the weak bit. And that's the one where somewhere on the disk or in, in, in multiple places on the disk, there is a certain... Bit that will read a zero or it will read a one indeterminately at random, depending on uh, any, any type of factor. So if you put the disc in the in the drive ten times, it may read a one six times, and it may read a zero, you know, the other four times. And the company FTL knew that it was a copy of the disc if it only read a one or a zero, because it meant that it was, you know, it was obviously copied. So they put all sorts of really interesting measures in the game to kind of mess with with the with the player. So you would uh, you'd be kind of walking through the dungeon and you'd you click on a, a door to open it and it wouldn't nothing would happen. Or uh, you would throw a throwing weapon in the air or you cast a spell and it would just suspend in the air or or you'd get a guru meditation or you'd be told to insert disc zero or all, all sorts of just random, random stuff and the, the interesting part about Dungeon Master was it wasn't something that happened immediately it, and it wasn't something that, you know, that, that they came out and said, hey, you, you know, you're, make, you're you're playing a pirate copy of the game, you know, stop doing it. It was they'd let you play the game for, you know, maybe an hour or two and get, get a couple levels in and you get kind of comfortable with playing. And then all of a sudden something would happen to really mess with you and, and you you realized, you know, you realize something was going on and to the 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 crackers they weren't really sure whether it was a bad crack of the game or if it was just a bug that was in the code or so they weren't really sure so the actual game took i believe it took like a year to actually be fully cracked on on the st and the amiga and by that time you know the company had had made pretty much all the money that they would ever make on sales of the game you know, because obviously you make a lot of sales in the first couple of weeks of of you know putting a game out on on retail, so they actually made a lot of money on, and the, the protection was actually um was 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 very successful for them, and uh, it was something that is it, still being talked about. You know, when you when you go back and look at the archives of of anti piracy stories. Dungeon Master is definitely one of those ones that's that's up there as, as one of the most ingenious ones.
2: You touched on, you know, some of the devices used there. So, you know, like products like Disc Doctor, did you know if they were illegal or did they kind of like occupy a gray area of like a development system, if you will? I
4: think it was more of a gray area. I mean, I don't think there was anything illegal specifically about a Disc Doctor type program being developed. And back in those days, I mean computer programs were, were being developed for all sorts of different uses. So I, I don't think it was, it was dubbed illegal by anyone. I mean, I think you could buy a copy of that in a, in a computer shop just right next to the latest games, but it certainly is a great area, especially when you talk about disc doctor and, and, you know, X copy and, and those programs that, that were ma- mainly meant for, you know, the, the piracy of, of software. So yeah, it's, a, it's a good question.
1: It's quite ironic. I never knew anyone that actually owned an original copy of Xcopy.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I um, I, I've seen, now. <laughs> yeah, I don't have one, but I've seen uh, I've seen the box, and and I gotta say, I I wouldn't mind getting my hands on one. That that'd be a cool collectible to have for sure.
1: Well, uh, one video that I remember you did was the the unhackable PlayStation Three, and that was a really interesting story about yeah. how the operating system was used to class it as a computer, and then. That turned out to be the vulnerability in the system, didn't
4: it? That's correct. So with the PS3, they, if you recall, they it came with uh, Yellow Dog Linux as or, as part of of the bundle. So Sony actually advertised Linux as a feature of the PS3, and with a mouse and keyboard and just a monitor, you could literally turn this game console into a kind of just a consumer level desktop computer type of thing. And you could do all sorts of things with Linux. But I guess one of the side effects of that was people like uh, George Hotz, Geohot there, the same guy that that hacked the the iPhone started snooping around with the hypervisor on the uh, uh, under Linux and Sony was paying attention to what he was doing because he was basically blogging, about the things that he had discovered while using Linux under the PlayStation 3 and I think their solution was essentially just to just to stop stop Linux altogether so they brought out a firmware update I believe it was in April of 2010 that essentially just that's that's killed off the Linux um you know environment on the PS3 which in turn got them in a lot of trouble because of, you know, the, the big class action lawsuit that I believe is still actually, they're still settling payments to this day, would you believe? that's It's hilarious that, that that's still going on. But I guess the damage was already done. You know, there, there were already people that were, were looking into beating the protection on the PS3. And I think Sony's biggest kind of downfall there was that in the end, because they removed Linux, it really kind of angered a lot of people in the community. People that not wouldn't necessarily take action on something like that, but there was then a kind of a rallying, kind of concerted effort to to get Linux back on the PlayStation 3. And in turn, that's that's kind of what it, it, it that's what ended up happening with its demise. And they ended up finding the, you know, the root keys and all sorts of things. And, and they ended up beat, defeating the system completely. And basically, being able to sign a custom firmware that you could just install as a as a firmware update on your PS3, which brought Linux back on on the PS3. So it was it was it was a very interesting time for Sony. They they learned a lot of lessons from, from that one for sure. And I think that the ta- the biggest takeaway there, at least uh, for me, is. Don't take Linux away from from a system that already has it because you're going to anger the wrong people and <laughs> they're going to tr- they're going to find a way to bring it back and that's that's ended up what that's what ended up happening.
1: It's quite ironic actually because it must have cost them quite a bit of money, you know. But I do remember reading that the only reason they put Linux on there was like for a tax break, so they'd actually get a better tax break for classifying it as a computer, not a console, which obviously kind of bit them in the behind, I guess, in the end, didn't it?
4: That's interesting you yeah. say that. I mean, I think Sony's always been. A little more um, kind of of an open environment or an open system than say the Xbox. Like I, I did a video recently on the the Net Yaroze on the PlayStation One, where you know it was like a consumer grade dev kit where you could you could build your own games in your bedroom. And then on the PS2 there was uh, Linux as well, so you could run Linux on the PS2. That Sony had a, an official distribution, and they kind of brought it forward to the PS3. So I've always felt like they they they've left the door open for you know, the hacker, the bedroom coder, the, you know, the guy that wants to tinker around with with their system, you know, that, that option to turn the, the console into more than just a game system.
0: It's really interesting. Every time a new console comes out, they always talk about how their format is uncrackable and how this is the greatest new technology. I remember when the Dreamcast came out with GD-ROM and they had a the wavy lines on the disc and there was holes in certain places and stuff like that it was pretty strange because when the dreamcast came out in the uk a group called utopia released a boot disc pretty much straight away so uh, could you tell us about the utopia boot disc
4: yeah it, it's 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 an interesting one that the dreamcast i mean i think sega kind of came out and said you know this is this is really secure copy protection that we have here and if you really think about it, it really was because at the time there was nothing that could read a GD ROM other than you know a, a Sega Dreamcast development kit, of course. So if you put a a GD-ROM into your into your disk drive or your CD drive on your PC, you know, it wouldn't read the disk, it would just say put this into a into a Dreamcast and, and play the game. But the Utopia disc was interesting because one of the biggest Exploits that was quickly discovered was the the mil CD the the multimedia CDs that that you would get with the Dreamcast and there was only a handful of them that that ever came out I think there was only like maybe five or six of them that were ever released but I guess the most popular one is it's kind of the add-on disc that came with Space Channel 5 in Japan and it was just this like extras disc that had extra music on there and and I think maybe a, a music video on there or something. But that particular disc was just a standard CD-ROM. It was just a you know, standard 700-megabyte CD, which was a standard kind of ISO 9600 kind of format CD. And in the end, they realized, well, if, if, if these discs can boot on a Dreamcast, well, how do we make just a regular you know, CD boot on a Dreamcast. And they kind of went from there. They they quickly f- realized that there was an exploit found that allowed the Dreamcast to boot just normal CDs. And that's how the Utopia disc started. They, they basically built this, you know, region-free kind of disc loader that would just load a, a small program on a burnt CD. And then it would just wait for you to put in, you know a, a backup of a dreamcast game and then it would just boot from it it was uh it was very like in the end it was probably the weakest form of copy protection that was that was ever kind of put into the uh into a console but um you know sega had kind of relied so heavily on the gd rom format being unreadable that they didn't realize that you know maybe Maybe uh, we should we should you know tighten up the the security on just kind of regular CDs or that the, the mill CD format being implemented um as, as part of a protection you know method to get to get defeated. So
2: with the CDs on the Dreamcast were they just completely self booting or did they have to come up with something with
4: that at at the beginning um, the Utopia disc essentially takes the boot sectors from a Mill CD, like yeah. a Space Channel Five disc. Oh, okay, and, right. And so it, it just kind of boots off of that, and then later on, they quickly figured out that well, we don't need a Utopia disc anymore. We just put the same boot sectors from the oh, Mill CD onto right. each of our yeah. games. So if you if you download, and I'm not saying anyone should, but if you if you download <laughs> one of the kind of Echelon cracks um, or one of the Echelon kind of rips from from the internet. All the all the kind of the boot sectors are, are the same. It's the same kind of MIL-CD format that that uh, was used on the Utopia disc. So in the end, they realised that you didn't need a Utopia disc to to do that. You know, and that was quickly found. Pretty much, you know, maybe a couple of weeks after the Utopia disc had come out, it was quickly realised that hey, we can just boot boot off of any game that we want to.
1: What's the difference between
4: breaking copy protection and running unsigned code? So the difference. Well, that, that's a good question. I mean, I think. In some regards, they're, pretty, they're one, you know, one of them the same. But let me kind of give you some examples. I mean, unsigned code is is essentially just when you develop code on. Uh, I'll just use a game console as an example. You know, like like the Xbox. That that's a pretty pretty kind of straightforward way to to describe it. But if you're developing code on on a development kit, on like an Xbox. And you're testing it on, you know, a development kit, or you're testing it on a a debug kit. That that code is unsigned, and what unsigned means is it it hasn't been sent to, and I'll just use Microsoft as the example, hasn't been sent to Microsoft to be um, signed with a with their private key. And the private key is something that no one ever has access to. It's something that you know the, the company or the publisher has has you know at their at their offices that is usually not not known by anyone what 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 that key is so that private key will then sign your your code or your piece of code or your game for it to be you know pressed onto CDs and then kind of get out into the retail store so the difference there is is that cracking something is is when you have a piece of code but you're kind of manipulating the the you know the code you're you're kind of changing the bytes around or you're you're patching you know a routine to say hey if i'm about to jump into a copy protection check let's just skip over that and i think that's kind of the main difference there but but having said that dan you know with with kind of console game type cracking that that went on like you know on the playstation and and the ps2 and things like that the the xbox you'd need a modded system anyway to run unsigned code in order for those cracks to work. So it's almost like there's a dependency there or there's a, you know, there's like a, yeah, like a dependency between, between the two things. So both of them, you know, kind of share a lot of, of similar things, but ultimately, you know, unsigned code really means when it's kind of being developed on, on a development kit before it, it gets sent to, to get certified by the publisher
0: and i guess stuff like that leads to huge homebrew scenes so um the xbox for example uh, led to xbox media center which then kind of went on to cody and uh i was just wondering kind of how hard was it to originally crack the xbox and to get that unsigned code running on there
4: considering it was essentially a pc it was very very quick it was it wasn't like the dreamcast but it wasn't that far off off the Dreamcast, from from what I recall, when the Xbox first came out, a lot of people were interested in in knowing how to, like you said, you know, run run Windows software on it because essentially it was just a Celeron based system that had uh, you know PC parts kind of literally off the shelf almost that that was in this kind of in this game console kind of form factor. So there was a lot of Quick discoveries that were done to try to defeat this thing, but it wasn't really until um, Bunny Andrew Wang was was the first guy that got um, hold of the the Xbox, and he ended up building a literally a packet sniffer that would kind of sit between the CPU and the kernel, like the the kernel ROM on on the flash chip, and he was figuring out what was going on between there. And he quickly realized that there was, you know, there was a secret ROM that was kind of stashed away somewhere else in the internals of the system. And he was able to extract the secret ROM, which ended up having the, 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 like the, the key, you know, the, the private key to the system. And from there, he was pretty quickly able to determine that, Hey, with this, with this key, I can now, you know flashing your firmware I can I can decrypt the firmware I can do all sorts of things and essentially it was very quickly after that that you know unsigned code was was able to be run on the original Xbox it was uh, it was something that Microsoft really didn't put too much into their security of I think they they took a lot of I mean they were quite naive at the time when they when they were developing the Xbox I didn't think security was a huge factor I mean it was certainly something that that they were interested in I'm not saying that they didn't do any security on the system but they they were very lax on the security on the original Xbox and you know it was quickly it was quickly defeated and then kind of later on there were also the the save exploits that didn't require you to you know wire up a mod chip inside that would just you know utilize the save game exploits where you would have you know, a a player profile name that was like 50 characters long when it only would accept you know 10 characters in the name when you would put your name in the game like split to Cell or something, and those types of things would would trigger, you know, these kind of weird buffer overruns and then allow you to to run you know your your own code which ended up usually just being, you know, a a bootloader to load into a a dashboard which had FTP and then you could connect up to FTP and and start, you know, inserting all your ROMs and your emulators into into the system pretty quickly.
2: Do you think there's like quite a large risk with people going public with these exploits, like where they could just get instantly sued or it could just get instantly patched out and all their hard work's kind of gone to nothing?
4: Yeah, I I think so. Um, You know, there's a couple of different things going on right now, like with the Nintendo Switch, which is Pretty well well known that, you know, the earliest Switch models have the the kind of the the uh, the jig exploit where you literally set a paperclip into the right Joy-Con um, and you can you can boot it up into RCM mode. And then there's the PlayStation 4, which which also has, I'll say, a small but there is a scene there and there is ways to defeat the PS4 provided that you have a system under a certain firmware revision but those types of things quite honestly i i would say that you know it, it's the best thing to do is leave those alone i don't think there's there's any value in going public with any exploits that are found on kind of current generation type stuff because number one they're going to get they're going to get patched because we live in an age of hypervisors and you know the the Xbox One and the PS4 they can self update pretty quickly without without too much difficulty because everything kind of runs in their own little kind of walled off virtual machines and, and things so getting getting kind of root level access is is next to impossible these days so any exploits that are found you know would usually come under a lot of a lot of interest by the company but you know for me i think i think it's okay to talk about the old stuff that happened you know if you go back 10 years 15 years that the sony ps2 the, the ps1 the xbox the dreamcast systems like that that obviously uh, are no longer around and haven't been for a long time i think it's i think it's okay to to you know talk about those types of things without without any type of repercussions but i would i would say yeah anything that's kind of modern day I would probably, you know, not 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 touch it. In fact, I mean, I've I've been a target of Nintendo taking down some of my videos for that for that exact reason, you know, on the Switch. So, I mean, I think right there is is proof positive that you should probably not talk about, you know, the the, the kind of the current stuff that that's that's out there. I think it's probably the best thing to do.
1: Well, I remember a stage at school when suddenly every kid seemed to have like a a mod chip in their PlayStation 1. Do you think the process of like turning these hacks and mods into commercial products has become quicker with manufacturing improvements in in recent years? I think so. I mean,
4: you've got these kind of companies that that make these simple bits of hardware that allow us to 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 mod systems easier, but I will also say that the days of the, you know, the the 20-wire mod chip that you would solder into your into your onto your motherboard I don't think those days are really around anymore. I think these days it's really more about the the software type exploits. Mm. So if you think about the the switch, and if you think about like the DS and the Wii, the Wii U, all of those were were you know exploits via you know software mods that that occurred. And I think that's really where things have been going for quite a while. The hardware modding stuff is just it's just. So it's kind of a lot lot more about the older generation of systems and, and less and less these days. But uh, it's really more about, you know, the, the software mods. But even still, to your point, I think, you know, these kind of mod chip makers, like uh, I'll use Team Executor as an example. I mean, they they still release these kind of tools for, I'll say, the, the, the folks that have heard about, oh, I can mod my, my Switch or I can mod my Wii U. But I don't really know, you know, how to do it. I don't want to read a a 20-page guide on some on some GitHub page. Um, is there an easy way for me to do it? Is there like a one-click solution? Where where there is a way to do that, I think there are mod chip manufacturers out there that have, have come up with solutions to do that for sure.
0: Well, talking of kind of hardware hacks and how hard they were back in the days, so I remember the uh, PlayStation One would be defeated with a pen. Um but the PlayStation Two was very hard to hack with that um, tray, that kind of front-loading tray. Uh, did that cause a lot of issues? Um, I remember a thing called the... It was like a credit card that you put in and you had to slide it left and oh, yes. force the drive open. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard of that one before, Ravi, but uh, the, the PS2 was a lot more sophisticated. That There were... I think there was three levels of security on the PS2. There, there was the... I'll say that the swap trick approach where you could still swap trick a PS2, but it would only work with, I think, the CD-based games, not the DVD-based games. But there was also additional checks in there. There was a, a chip in there called the Mechacon. And that that really was... It was it was almost like a hypervisor before a hypervisor really ever existed. And that took care of a lot of the security on the PS2. But it wasn't foolproof, as, as we know. I mean, there were there was certainly ways to to work around and defeat the protection and then you also had companies like Daytel that were releasing these action replay discs and if you remember that those discs that you would put in with all the cheats on the on the on the disc and then you would put the the game in to cheat on the game you know Daytel somehow figured out how to boot these discs that were unlicensed on a PS2 that was didn't even have a mod chip in there and I remember, and I've, I've told this story before, but I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. But what what they tell ended up doing was, and this is this is this is a true story. They ended up taking an original PS2 game, and I believe it was Crazy Taxi, and they just cut out the security sectors physically from that game, and they transposed it onto their action replay discs, and that's how they got their stuff to boot on the PS2. It's a fascinating story, and. And and a lot of people say that you know that doesn't even make any sense. But I tell you, if you if you if you still have an action replay disc laying around on the PS2, and you put it into a PC, it will come up and say Crazy Taxi as the as the the, the name of the disc. So it's it's actually uh, it's actually a true story. So there were there were different different ways to defeat the PS2, and I think in the end, you know, there was like a a mod chip that that really kind of beat everything. But if you recall, there were so many different mod chips and and different ways to to get things to work, and there wasn't really a you know a one one size fits all approach. But in the end, uh, you know later on, I think that it was like the Messiah chips, or uh, I think it was called the Messiah chip, that was really the one that that kind of beat all the different types of protection on on the PS2.
2: So, talking to the Action Replay, which is one I'm actually really familiar with myself, and obviously, you know, it's a huge history of helping access games and pull out code and stuff. How did the product help defeat the GameCube protection?
4: The uh, it's interesting. The, the The GameCube protection was was something that was already defeated before the Action Replay had okay. come out. What ended up happening was the the exploit was found with Fantasy Star Online, so. The way this all went down was with Fantasy with Star Online, when it came out on the GameCube, it was quickly realized if you changed the DNS settings, you could just point to your local computer rather than the, the, the PSO servers that were that were running at the time. And from there, what ended up happening was if you wrote a little program that just listened to the port that it was trying to connect to, you could essentially just dump the contents of the disk and all the all the memory from your GameCube. So from there, it was quickly realized that, hey, there's no there's no encryption on any of this stuff. So none of the none of the files are encrypted. There's no additional security. There's no hypervisor. And in the end, that was what really kicked off the 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 action replay on the GameCube. It was it was determined how the boot process worked and it was quickly determined how to essentially replicate the boot sectors on an Action Replay disc on the GameCube. And that's in the end, that's how they ended up making the Action Replay discs without needing a mod chip.
1: Well, after that, the Wii came along. And um, at at the initial launch of that, I remember people talking about the fact that it was a very secure console. Um, Obviously today, massive homebrew scene on it too. And that was defeated by
4: uh, (laughs) a pair of tweezers. (laughs) That's correct. That is correct. It's 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 a bit of a. I won't say I mean, it's it's an interesting story. It's I'm not sure if the tweezers was the only thing that beat it, but it was certainly a part of the process. And in the end, the the Wii again was was something that had come out, which was quite quite secure when when it was first released. There was a lot going on, and there was kind of essentially there were two processes inside the hardware. And there was the the OS that was that was running when you would turn on the Wii, you'd you'd see the familiar kind of the Wii screen where you could you could load your games and and manipulate the uh, the the system, um, you know your your memory cards and stuff like that. That was actually called iOS, not to confuse anyone with with Apple's iOS, but the Wii also had an operating system called iOS, and it was quickly determined that you couldn't get access to iOS any other way via you know, normal methods trying to, you know, sniff it out or, or something like that. But as it turns out, if you attached a, a paperclip or a pair of tweezers across the, the data bus, the address lines on the chip, you could get access to different memory locations. And the way it ended, ended up being defeated was, if you guys remember, you could you could play GameCube games on the Wii. So when you boot into a GameCube game, they or well, Nintendo did not clear out the the memory of of the Wii portion before they loaded into the GameCube portion of of the Wii, and in the end, some some smart hackers were able to with with a pair of tweezers were able to essentially just crawl over the the memory locations and extract the iOS, the you know the the, the operating system, and from there they were able to you know extract the keys and, and get access to the system and, and by that point it was it was pretty much done it was it was defeated quite quickly
0: well I was absolutely fascinated to see your kind of anti-piracy arcade video because I, I couldn't believe that people were pirating Capcom boards and stuff like that but um you were talking about a console called the CPS charger which was yeah. kind of a, a failed Capcom console how did that help defeat the uh, protection on arcade games?
4: Well, what ended up happening, Ravi, was this, it's, it's actually called the CPS Changer. Uh, I, I, got, I just found that out myself because a lot of people corrected me on my video. But uh, so this, I've the, been the researching
0: CPS, watching your videos. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. The,
4: the CPS Changer is is essentially a, a home console for Capcom arcade boards. So I think there was only a handful of CPS Changer games that ever came out but it was kind of Capcom's failed attempt at bringing their their arcade games home back in those days. And essentially what happened was there was one particular game, I think it was Street Fighter Zero 2 or Street Fighter Zero, that was a almost one-to-one replica of the CPS2 version with, with some minor differences. And that was really what started the whole thing. Because before that, no one really knew how to to extract the the CPS2 game and and, and you know kind of without kind of seal siding the, the CPS two games because of the, the seal side battery that was in each of the CPS2 ROMs. And with the encryption that was going on with the CPS2, if you tried to, you know, extract one of the ROMs with a EPROM burner and and maybe change some bytes around to to have a different version of the game the game just wouldn't boot because there was some pretty sophisticated protection in the CPS two. And then coupled with the suicide battery meant that it was almost impossible to, to make a bootleg of, of any CPS two game, but it ended up being the CPS changer that really kind of opened up the door a little. And some, uh, some, you know, hackers discovered that, well, now we know how, how this all works. Maybe we can reverse engineer, what we what our discovery is, and figure out how to get access to, you know, the the CPS2 ROMs, and and how to, you know, make that make that work. And in the end, it was really the the CPS changer and the Street Fighter 2 Zero game that was kind of the starting point for that. And then from there, it was just a matter of understanding how the the suicide process works. That was quickly discovered that once the board kind of dies, once the battery dies, and the the contents of the RAM in the battery gets gets lost, then it's just a matter of all the code lives in a different memory link location, so they ended up patching that back to what they knew would it was originally, and then from there they discovered that there was also a key that was that was found and that was used to decrypt the ROMs as well. And with those two things, they were able to to get work around it. But to your point, I mean, CPS2 arcade boards for the duration of the lifecycle of CPS2 in the arcades. There was there was a total of zero bootleg. So Capcom's security was really, you know, it really held up quite well for, for for many many years. It wasn't really until much later. In fact, it was like 2006 when it was kind of first discovered how to kind of de-decide a, a CPS2 board. And then much later, in fact, 2013 was when we we found out how to actually revive a CPS2 board that that was that had you know suicide and kind of get bring it back to to where it was you know back in you know, from the factory.
1: I mean, talking about copy protection that stood the test of time, I've still got scars on my fingers, I think, from trying to install mod chips in the Sega Saturn. And I know that was only in recent years that actually kind of, you know, was be able to be software modded. It was really difficult. I mean, why was that so tough? What was it about the design of the Saturn that made the copy protection so, so strong on that?
4: I think there's a lot going on with the Saturn there was um different levels of security that they had implemented. But you know, honestly, it's it's something that I'm kind of looking into right now. And I, I I want to learn more about it myself. I mean, I know from a high level there was kind of three different levels of protection that they had implemented, coupled with the fact that the the actual hardware itself is is quite complex. I mean, if you if you take a look at the system, there's a lot going on there. There's all the different chips and everything, you know, that a lot of developers we're, were were talking about how difficult it was to develop for, and I think I think the same thing applies for people trying to defeat protection. You know, where do you start? It's such a complex system with so many different chips and so many things going on. But but it's definitely something that um, I'm I'm looking into right now for you know an up-and-coming episode. So you know, uh, stay tuned on that one because I'll definitely have more more info on that. But at the moment, I mean, there's not really much else that that I know about the the the, the Sega Saturn other than just I guess from a high level that it's a very very complex machine in so many different ways from from a development standpoint and also from a protection standpoint.
2: And have you ever had any of the pirate groups or cracking groups kind of contact you and reach out to you for help with uh, cracking consoles? <laughs>
4: um, I, I have um, not necessarily for for help, yeah. but I, I've had a lot of um, a lot of different folks from different groups from you know from different genera you know, all the way going all the way back from, you know, folks that were in Razor and Fairlight and Paradox, um, you know, telling me their stories. because uh, 'cause I'm really fascinated to to hear stories about about stuff like that. And um, you know, I, I want to learn about how, how cracks were done. You know, I, I hear about one game that took a year to defeat or something like that. And I want to know how it was cracked. And I'm interested to hear what what process was used. So yeah, I've had a lot of different different I, I guess uh ex scene members reach out and 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 chat with me about, you know, their story. And I think it's it's very interesting to to go back and, and listen to, to what they have to say.
0: I remember when Steam came out and people were saying this will be the end of piracy. Uh now we've got video game streaming. Um do you think that will put a stop to
4: piracy? I think ultimately what will put a stop to piracy is and, and maybe maybe you're saying the same thing Ravi is is the whole games as a service model you know like as much as I hate the the kind of the newer games as a service where everything's always connected to something for for some reason I think ultimately that's that's where the industry is, is heading with, with that type of stuff mm. and you know it, it really means that well if you're not connected to our servers over here then you can't play the game and I think you know game streaming like stadia and and um Cloud and stuff like that That, that's definitely another another way to gatekeep or um control you know the experience for the person and maybe make it less uh easy for for someone to 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 copy or or pirate something but i think the other thing i'll say is is and i i look full disclaimer guys i haven't done this for many 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 years but games are so big these days i mean we're talking like 100 gigabytes to download a game these days, uh, you know, Red yeah. Dead Redemption is like a 100 gigabyte game, you know, on, on a couple of Blu-rays. I mean, who's who's got the the time and the bandwidth to to download uh, 100 gigabytes worth of a game on a torrent site anymore and 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 then try to figure out how to make it run on your PC? It's I think things have changed a lot in, in the scene. And maybe I'm a little bit naive about that. There's probably someone listening that's telling me that, no, you know, it's, it's still alive and kicking and and maybe it is, but you know, for me, I just think the the size of the, of the, of the games that we're dealing with these days really just puts it, you know, most people except, I guess the hardcore, the hardcore folks, you know, you know, put the puts, puts them off. And maybe it's just easier to just, you know, spend your, your $60 or your, or, or whatever at the store, and just get the game and, and do it that way. Or like to your point, Robbie, just you know, you know, video stream it or use a game streaming service in order to do it. I think I think that's really where where things are going.
3: Yeah,
0: I think I think you make some good points, and there's kind of a a wider conversation about stuff like um, I remember when World of Warcraft came out, and people just kind of made their own servers and connected to that. But also then they were creating classic servers, which then kind of force Blizzard to think, oh, this is popular. Let's make some of our own official classic servers. So, yeah, it, it's interesting to see what the
4: future will hold. Definitely. And that, that's a good point. Yeah, World of Warcraft, I mean, they, they essentially took the ideas of, of you know, just the community and they did it themselves and they monetized it. And, and from what I've been told, I don't, I don't play World of Warcraft, but what I've been told, it's, it's very, very popular, very successful. Well, what can we look forward to in
1: your channel then over the next coming weeks?
4: I've got a whole bunch of different stuff going on dan there's there's more anti piracy stuff coming up, so um you guys will like that ravi will but uh, i i did an amiga video last week and i've got I've got the urge to do more amiga content, so i'm gonna go back and and look into that again, but just a little bit of everything i mean i, I did a um I've been doing like a segment on how how graphics work on kind of these old systems like the game boy the Game Boy Advance. So I'm going to kind of continue that series as well. You know, for me, it's it's really, I don't have a, a, a schedule. I don't sit down and, and pencil in what I'm going to do for the year as far as videos. It's really more about what feels right at the time. And and it's like, you know, it's literally a, a week in week out type scenario where I'm like, okay, what am I going to do next week? And, and I come up with something. So I guess, you know, in summary, I guess more of the same as, as what you've seen over the last last 18 months. There's there's a lot more coming down the pipe. And
1: we're going to be seeing you in person as well in a few months' time. you coming to um, Flashback 2020 in the Netherlands this summer.
4: Yes, I am. Amiga 35 Flashback, yeah. I'm, I'm psyched about it. I can't wait. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Never been to the Netherlands, so going to really enjoy the countryside as well. So I'm very, very uh, excited to, to be going out there.
0: You'll have to get some clogs.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's
1: what Ravi wears all the time, anyway. <laughs> just hear me clopping down the street. <laughs> well, Demetrius, it's been a pleasure catching up with you again. Um, congrats on the success of the channel as well. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank you so much for coming on.
4: Thanks for having me on the show, gents, and uh, have a good one.